Section 19 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453, by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. History of France, 1380-1453, Part 1. The period which followed the reign of Charles the Wise was one of great disaster for France. The new king, Charles VI, was only eleven years old on his father's death, and though a boy of considerable spirit and promise, his early introduction to the troubles, excitements, and dissipations of royalty were too much for a brain naturally feeble. His reign began with a struggle for power amongst his uncles. Charles V had three brothers. The Duke of Anjou, the eldest, was greedy and ambitious. He stole the crown jewels and declared himself regent. The Duke of Berry was bought off by being given the rule in Languedoc, where his cruelties and oppressions encouraged constant disquiet, which kept him occupied. Philip the Bold, the boy who alone had stood by his father at Poitiers, had been rewarded with the Duchy of Burgundy, which had fallen to the crown in 1361, and was one of the richest princes in Europe. He had married Margaret of Flanders, widow of the last Duke of Burgundy of the Old House, and only child of Count Louis Le Mal, who died in 1382, leaving all his great territories in the hands of his son-in-law, an all-important fact, for it was largely on account of Flanders that Burgundy became later more attached to England than to France. A fourth claimant for power was found in the Duke of Bourbon, brother of the late king's wife, and the selfish disputes between these princes of the fleur-de-lis were not conducive to the welfare of the country. The close of the 14th century was a period of popular risings in many countries. It was not only in England that Watt Tyler's rebellion showed the strength of the people growing in opposition to feudalism. In France, there were disturbances in Paris at the opening of the new reign, chiefly against the heavy taxation of the princes. The rioters were called maillotins or hammerers, from the weapon they most frequently carried. The government, for the time, had to yield to popular wishes. The Duke of Anjou was anxious for peace as his whole attention was turned to Naples, on which he had claims, and in 1382 his departure to fight for his rights against Charles of Durazzo left the chief authority in the hands of Philip of Burgundy. Urged by his uncle Philip, the young king went off with a large army to assist the Count of Flanders, once more in trouble with his subjects. The Flemings, especially those of Ghent as before, had risen against their unpopular ruler and were headed by Philip van Artevelde, the son of their old leader, a man equally bold and determined. The rebels captured Bruges, where the Count had a romantic escape, being concealed in the bed of a poor woman whilst her house was searched by his enemies, and other successes also emboldened the Burgesses in their resistance. Van Artevelde, however, was not a trained warrior, and he was unable to maintain his forces against the French army at Rosbeck. The story runs that before the battle, 29th of November, 1382, 
he had a vision of fire in the sky and heard sounds of war above the Flemish camp, which foretold the disaster that was to come. The horrors of the next day are unrivaled in the annals of war, and it was a ghastly introduction for the boy king to the trade of arms. The one idea of the Flemings was to obtain sheer solid strength and thus force a way through the line of their foes. With this object they linked themselves so closely together that no enemy could possibly enter their ranks, but on the other hand they themselves could scarcely strike a blow. Attacked on both sides at once, they were pressed more and more closely together till half their numbers died, not through the weapons of the French, but from simple suffocation. There was a mountain of slain Flemings both long and high, and never had one seen so great a battle, and so many dead with so little spilling of blood. This was because so many were stifled in the press, so shed no blood. Philip van Artevelde himself was among the slain, and Charles, satisfied with this victory, returned to his own country, where his entry into Paris was marked by a severe repression of all who had taken part in the recent rebellion. The leaders of the Maillotins were executed, the office of provost of the merchants abolished, and municipal liberties destroyed. The first great event in the government came when the king declared that he was of age, and like Richard II in England, flung himself free from the control of his uncles, 1388, and began to govern with the help of old counsellors of his father. Marmuset, the jealous nobles called them, angry at the favour shown to men of lower birth than themselves. The whole condition of affairs was changed, however, by the king's attack of madness. A combination of causes helped to bring this about. One of Charles's most trusted advisers was his constable, Olivier de Clisson. A personal enemy of Clisson, Pierre de Caon, backed up by the Duke of Brittany, determined on his removal. One night, when returning with a few attendants through the narrow street of St. Catherine, the constable was fallen upon by Pierre himself, and a band of hired ruffians, who dealt him blows which felled him from his horse, and, as they thought, killed him. He was saved by striking in his fall the half-open door of a baker's shop, where work had begun early. As he fell across the threshold, the assassins dared not enter the house, but fled in hot haste, leaving him stretched unconscious. The king, to whom news of the crime was brought, flew half-dressed to the assistance of his friend, found him alive, and learnt the name of the would-be murderer. Medical aid was speedily procured, and the constable recovered, but Charles, having failed to capture de Caron, determined on the punishment of the Duke of Brittany, whom he rightly guessed to have been at the bottom of the affair. Ill and feverish himself, he disregarded the prayers of his doctors, and during the hottest summer months rode to the attack of his unruly vassal. One blazing July day, having first been startled in a wood by a madman who had seized his bridle crying, Turn, turn, you are betrayed, he was driven out of his senses by the sudden clang of a lance, which a sleepy page let fall on the helmet carried by another of his attendants. Thinking that a whole army was upon him, the king, completely crazed, drew his sword and fell upon his own followers, striking down right and left. 
Finally, he hotly pursued his own brother, the Duke of Orléans, and was only captured with great difficulty and at last quieted, although unable to recognize anyone. The attack was violent, but it passed at last, only to be renewed by the wild career of gaiety with which his friends sought to dispel his melancholy humors. An awful accident gave the final blow to his poor wits. Dressed as wild men with clothes of skin soaked in pitch, he and five others were dancing at a marriage feast, when the Duke of Orléans, with a torch, set fire to one of the inflammable dresses. The king was saved by a lady with whom he was talking and who covered him with her robe, but the other five perished in the flames, which caught them all and could not be extinguished. Charles never recovered from this shock. Though only completely mad at periods of the year, he was never really himself. Hence a struggle ensued for power in the kingdom, which threw the whole working of the government out of gear, and eventually left the country an easy prey to the renewed invasion of the English. The chief rivals for the control of the government were the Duke of Burgundy, whose great territorial power has already been noticed, and Charles's brother, the Duke of Orléans. The latter was far the inferior in actual wealth and position. His lands, though extensive, were scattered, and his purchase of Luxembourg only involved him in expense and infuriated his rival. But he had considerable influence and an attractive personality which won him friends, despite the levity and unscrupulousness of his character. Handsome, of a ready wit, a lover of books and art, a benefactor of the church, always gay and affable, Orléans reminds one in many ways of our own Duke Humphrey of Gloucester. As was the case in the rivalry between Gloucester and Beaufort, this quarrel meant far more than mere personal antagonism, and the two principal opponents represented the two great parties into which the kingdom was divided. The Orléans party was that of the old feudal nobility, supporters of privilege and arbitrary power while the Burgundians, more for the sake of opposition than from real popular leanings, were champions of municipal liberty and financial reform, thereby winning the allegiance of the Parisians. In every question that arose, the two dukes took opposite sides. Efforts were being made at the time to end the papal schism, and while Burgundy was urging the retirement of Pope Benedict, Orléans was his staunchest supporter. In England, Orléans posed as the avenger of Richard II, while Burgundy was making terms with the Lancastrian usurper. In the empire, Fensel was backed up by Louis, his rival Rupert of the Palatinate, by Philip. This state of affairs was but little affected by the death in 1404 of Philip the Bold. His son, John the Fearless, took up the same attitude, possibly with even greater animosity. The new duke was the exact opposite of his cousin Orléans. Short and plain, built for strength rather than grace, he was silent, cautious, unattractive, and extremely ambitious. A sham reconciliation between John and Louis, when apparently they kissed one another with tears of joy, was followed almost immediately by the final tragedy. In the Rue des Francs-Bourgeois in Paris, an inscription still marks the narrow passage below overhanging eaves where Louis of Orléans was murdered. 
He had been with Queen Isabella of Bavaria in Hotel Barbette when a pretended message from the king was brought to him. Fearing no danger, he rode idly along the street, swinging his glove and singing as he went, his escort dawdling behind. Suddenly he was attacked and, utterly defenseless, could make no resistance. 1407. This time there was to be no mistake. The body was almost cut to pieces, and a horrified woman who saw the tragedy from a neighboring window noticed that when all was over, a man with a cap pulled over his eyes came and said to the others, Put out your lights. He is quite dead. Let us be off. The mutilated remains were buried in a chapel which Orléans himself had built amidst universal horror and mourning. The coffin was borne by his uncle of Berry and his cousins, the titular king of Sicily, the Duke of Bourbon, and the Duke of Burgundy. All wept, but none more bitterly than Duke John. The crime was not long a mystery. Burgundy acknowledged that it had been done by his command. It was I. The devil tempted me, he whispered to the old Duke of Bourbon, probably in a moment of repentance and humiliation, but though he fled after his avowal, the deed was not regarded with universal indignation. Orléans had long ceased to be popular with the people, especially in Paris, and there was even a master of the university who wrote in defense of the act as the just removal of a tyrant. John of Burgundy, soon restored to pride and self-confidence, was able for some years to maintain his ascendancy, and through the Dauphin Louis, who was his son-in-law, became the practical ruler of the kingdom. Vengeance, however, was only delayed, not averted. The three sons of the murdered man, too young to take the lead themselves, were joined by most of the old noble families, and especially by Bernard of Armagnac, who now became the head of the party. France was divided into two camps, each of which took up arms, and a civil war broke out known in history as the struggle between the Armagnacs and Burgundians. The complications of this strife of parties would take too long to unravel. The results of it were seen in the great misery of Paris and the country generally, and in the extreme dearness of food and terrible poverty and distress. Above all, the civil war in France was a direct cause of the new English invasion. Hitherto there had been little danger from England. Richard II, when freed from his own difficulties, had made peace with France and married the Princess Isabel. Henry IV had had no time to spare from securing his own position. But now Henry V, young, popular, and warlike, was ready to reassert the old claim at a moment's notice. John of Burgundy, for a time humbled by his rivals, began to treat with the enemy of France and offered to help him in an attack upon the dominions of the Armagnacs. Henry spent some time in negotiating, but he meant war from the first, and it did not require the Dauphin's foolish present of tennis balls to stir up his zeal for the enterprise. In August 1415, he landed in Normandy with a small but well-disciplined army. Our fleur, a sort of second Calais, was taken after a determined resistance, and Henry sent a personal challenge to the Dauphin, the combat to be for the crown itself, although whatever the issue, Charles VI was to retain it as long as he lived. But the question was not to be settled in this summary fashion. 
The challenge was disregarded, and the English army set out in the direction of Calais, following a route very similar to that taken by Edward III. The strictest order was kept amongst the troops, severe penalties being imposed on all plundering and on all deeds of violence. The port was not to be reached without opposition. A large force of the French, three or four times equal to that of Henry, faced him near the castle of Agincourt, and a battle was inevitable. The situation was one of the greatest danger, but the king was cool as ever. By the God of heaven, by whose grace I stand, and in whom I trust, I would not have another man if I could. Wouldest thou not that the Lord, with these few, can overthrow the pride of the French? So he answered one of his followers who ventured to wish for more archers. The soldiers were in sore need of encouragement. They were weakened by sickness and poor food, and a night of pouring rain before the battle did not contribute to their spirits. The ground was not particularly in favor of the English, but their small numbers were skillfully disposed in a long line, all on foot, even the king himself, and the archers were protected from a cavalry attack by a row of six-foot stakes planted in front of them. The French, on the other hand, were in three solid divisions, one behind the other, for the space did not permit all their numbers to commence the fight at once. They had archers, but these were uselessly placed behind the men-at-arms, who had refused to allow them what was considered the place of honor in the front. Another mistake arising from the same jealous pride was that all the princes and nobles were in the first division, and their followers almost leaderless in the rearguard, so that no order or firmness was to be expected there. Add to this that the French had no real commander-in-chief, and it will be evident that the success of the English was not astonishing, although their courage in attacking so enormous an army is deserving of every honor. The loss of life on the French side was terrible. Fighting in such close ranks, the soldiers were scarcely able to defend themselves, and when the two front divisions were pressed back, the rear fled almost without striking a blow. October 25th, 1415. Henry could, however, do no more that campaign, but taking ship at Calais, returned to give thanks in England for his great victory. Meanwhile, the internal discord of France continued as before, and utterly paralyzed resistance to the foreigners. As a Parisian, writing during the siege, says, the nobles were far too busy to attend to the English. The death of the king's two eldest sons made Charles Dauphin, and he was completely under the control of the Armagnac party, whilst John the Fearless had won Queen Isabel to his side. These divisions encouraged Henry, backed up also by the Emperor Sigismund, to renew the attack, and war was recommenced in 1417 with the siege of Rouen. The garrison was starved out, 19th of January, 1419. They were reduced, says a chronicler, to eating dogs, cats, rats, mice, and such things, so that it was piteous to behold. When the attack began, the poor were driven from the town to save the scanty provisions. Henry would not let them pass his lines, but provided food for them, and they lived in the dry moat whilst the siege went on. Babies were drawn up in baskets to be baptized and then let down again, and on Christmas Day a dinner was provided for them by the English king in honor of the festival. 
Nevertheless, despite his kindness of heart, Henry did not make war as though it were a tournament or knightly exercise. He made stiff terms with the conquered and would listen to no plans for peace which did not give him all that Edward III had gained at Bretigny with Normandy in addition. Negotiations seemed to be falling through when an event occurred which practically threw France into the hands of the English. After many efforts, peace at last seemed possible between Burgundians and Armagnacs, and the Duke of Burgundy, though not without hesitation, consented to a meeting with the Dauphin. Tanagui du Châtel, now the practical leader of the Armagnac party himself, silenced his fears. My honored lord, have no doubts. Monsieur is well pleased with you, and wishes in future to govern as you wish, and besides, you have good friends near him who love you. We trust in your word, replied the duke, but see well that what you say is true, for you will do ill to betray us. I would rather die than betray you, or anyone, swore the false Tanguy, and together they rode to the meeting place. On a bridge at Montereau, barricades had been erected, and the two principals entered, accompanied by a few followers. John the Fearless knelt to the Dauphin, and in this position, unable to draw his sword, he was struck down by a gang of men who rushed up from behind the prince. But Tanguy himself is said to have dealt the first blow. 10th of September, 1419. The murder was disastrous for the country. More than a century later, a monk showing Francis I the great dent made by a blow in the skull of John the Fearless said, Sire, that is the hole through which the English entered France. John's son Philip, now Duke of Burgundy, who thought of nothing but how to avenge his father, was ready to make any terms with the English, and by his assistance the Treaty of Troyes was drawn up, the terms of which would debar the family of his father's murderer forever from the succession, 1420. Charles VI was to be left in possession of the kingdom for his life, but Henry was to be regent, was to marry the Princess Catherine, and to succeed when the king died. This seemed strange to some in France, a chronicler quaintly remarks, but nothing else could be done for the present. With characteristic energy, the English king allowed himself one day only for his marriage festivities, and when urged to hold a great tournament on the morrow, replied, Next morning we must be ready to besiege the castle of Saint, where we shall find the enemies of our lord the king, and there can each of us joust and tourney and display his prowess and hardihood. End of section 19